Ah, uh, work. So satisfying. So fulfilling. Um, uh, you, know, you know the office? Yeah, it's great. So this, title, this talk's titled, uh, What Would David Do? You know, David Brent's wisdom on what to do in the workplace. No, only kidding. We'll look at Ephesians 4. Ephesians 6. Um, just sorry, one small correction, and uh, sorry, Jeff, about this. The Ephesians 4 reference, spot on, but the Ephesians 5 reference actually was supposed to be Ephesians 6. So you might want to just correct that on your outline, and we'll look at Ephesians 6 when we, when we get to that. Bit. After uni, I, I went and worked in a software startup as a programmer. Uh, unfortunately, we did pretty well. So we got bought out by a large American company. We were notified uh, this uh, by email on a Thursday, and we were told that our new boss was arriving from the US and we would meet him on the Monday morning, Thursday to Monday. The next day, Friday, uh, there's already a bit of change going on. There are a few people leaving, a few new people arriving. So it wasn't strange when, it, when a guy I hadn't seen before worked through, walked through our, our section uh, wearing jeans, sand shoes, and a Hawaiian shirt. He stopped and asked where the toilets were, and I told him. And he paused for a minute, and he asked me about the stuff on my screen and you know, what project I was working on. He was kind of around for the rest of the afternoon. In fact, at one stage, I heard him in the next cubicle talking to Jason. Uh, Jason explained to him that he'd finished his part of the project yesterday and wasn't planning to tell his manager for a couple of days and was getting in some computer games. After all, said Jason, the managers are idiots and are pretty easily fooled. You know what's coming, don't you? <laughs> Monday morning, we all file into the conference room and there's the guy from Friday, this time in a suit and tie. Jason looked quite pale during that whole meeting. It was one of those moments where you realise it pays to be very clear who the boss really is. As Christians, as, as a bunch of Christian people here, as God's people, we've been bought out by a new boss, but not because we were a prize acquisition, because we were performing so well. But God, while we were dead in transgressions and sins, utterly undeservedly, when we were utterly unlovely, God set his love upon us and he bought you to be his at the cost of the blood of his own precious son. Now, what does that change of ownership mean for your life and for your life in your workplace. Uh, Dennis, uh, the new American CEO, he actually turned out to be, to be a great job. He, he was a bit hard to get used to. He's always springing surprises. He had a different way of doing things. He valued different things. He lived a different work culture. The same thing is true when you become a Christian. How the book of Ephesians works the first three chapters, Ephesians describes God's way of doing things. He saved us by grace to belong to him as his treasured sons and daughters. And then Ephesians 4 to 6 describes what that change of ownership means for our way of doing things. 
Now we've been bought out. Ephesians 4 to 6 is not God saying, look, do this and I might save you. No. Now that I have saved you, now that I've made you mine and you belong to me, here is the good life I have saved you for. Already, you couldn't be more loved and accepted than you are. Here is the way we'll be doing things. You see, in all of life, the more I get the gospel, the more I get the way God deals with me, the more it will shape how I deal with you. The more I delight in God's kind of love to me, that he's generous and patient and forgiving, the more I I get to enjoy the sweetness of that and savour it. Well, the more I want my relationships to taste like that too, the more I long to be a man of grace and gentleness, of patience and forgiveness with others. In Ephesians, I think we specifically see how that works out well in all, all different ways in life, but particularly in the workplace. Now, turn with me to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. Apologies again. Sorry. Sorry for that. We'll get back to Ephesians 4. Don't worry. Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. Uh, oh, there it is up on the screen. Verse 5. Now, at first glance, as you look at Paul's instructions to slaves here, you might really say, well, this is a really different world, the first century world, from the world that we live in, a, a world of slavery where yet one human could own another. But in the first century, slavery took a range of forms. Much of it looked like what we would call employment or, or even apprenticeship. In many cases, people voluntarily entered slavery, took a, a fixed term, three years, in exchange for food, board, maybe some money, often receiving training, they served in a particular role. Their masters had obligations under law in how they were treated. Now, put your hand up and keep it up for me. Put your hand up if you, your work falls into one of these categories. Accountancy, finance, banking, management, keep your hands up, all hands up, lawyers, teachers, okay, lots of hands. In the New Testament, Those are jobs typically done by slaves. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's funny that the New Testament never defends slavery, but it doesn't call for a radical overthrow of the system either. The slaves, you know, to to break their chains and escape. Instead, it speaks of a far more revolutionary idea, a more radical kind of freedom. When you become a Christian, You belong to Jesus. He's the new boss. And all of life is to be lived in his service. Work and rest, paid, unpaid work. All of life is to be lived for his glory. Slaves are set free in the New Testament to love and serve Jesus. Not by by disobeying their earthly masters. Goodbye, earthly master. I'm off to serve Jesus instead of you. But part of loving Jesus will be faithfully serving their earthly masters as though, as though they were serving the Lord Jesus himself. Now, do you see that idea in Ephesians 
in, in chapter 6, verse 5, Paul said specifically to slaves, slaves, obey your earthly masters, just as you would obey Christ. Verse 7, just in case we're slow the first time, says it again, serve, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Now, this strange first century passage, as 21st century Christians, it actually has some huge implications for us as we think about how we act, how we act in the workplace. Don't make Jason's mistake. Be clear. Your real boss is Jesus. And it actually changes everything. And in fact, it's not just true. Uh, it's, it's actually true no matter where we found out, find ourselves in the, lot, in the chain of command. Paul says in verse 9, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. I don't know if you've ever thought, you know, if only I could, if only I could work for myself, if only I could leave this place, get away from my supervisor and start up something on my own and be the boss, be not answerable to anyone. Well, as a Christian, whether you're in the bottom rung of the company or the CEO, we're all under the command. We're all serving Jesus. And whatever you do, that suddenly gives your work, you know, it gives it a dignity, a significance, far above any earthly reward or recognition you could receive. When you serve your boss, your company, your community, your clients, your family, Jesus regards it as if you were serving him. My brother-in-law is a chef. He worked in London for a while at a posh business club. From time to time, members of the royal family ate there. Not the Queen and Prince Philip, but outer rung, you know, they're two steps out, kind of royalty. You know, a couple of plane loads of royals would have to go down before these guys would, would, would get a crack at things. <laughs> but even so, the arrival of a, an extremely minor royal, there would be, it was a big deal at the club, a buzz would go through the kitchen. So imagine if you're, if you're chefing away, and through the kitchen doors, it really was the Queen of England sitting on one of the tables. And the meal you're preparing you're about to take out to her. Now, if you've got Republican leanings, <laughs> you know, maybe you put a, a tenth of a bit of you know, chilli sauce in the apple pie, a bit of pepper on the ice cream. But, but for most of us, I, my guess is, no meal you ever cooked would be so fussed over and carefully arranged. Ephesians 6 is telling us every meal you plate up is for royalty. Not two rungs out, minor English dignitaries, but as though you were serving that plate to Jesus, the King of Kings himself. Whatever our work, can you see what a, what a game changer this might be in the way you think about your work? To serve each client, deliver every package, fold each pair of socks, examine each x-ray, as though it was for Jesus himself. How might that just change how you feel when you get out of bed and 
and stagger down the hall on Monday morning to get ready for work. Uh, Charlie Teo, if you saw him this week, you know, the thing where Arndo is painting people and interviewing them about their life, he talked about being a brain surgeon and he was asked, how do you actually concentrate for a 20-hour, you know, brain surgery, highly demanding operation? And he says, I keep thinking, I keep imagining that the person I'm operating on is someone I love deeply. It's my, one of my children. It's my mother. I have to do that if I'm going to get through it. He's reaching, it's not quite there, but he's reaching for this same idea. Look at how Paul develops that idea in verse 6. He says, Obey them, your earthly masters, obey them, not only to win their favour when their eyes on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Funnily enough, serving Jesus might actually make you more faithful to your earthly overseer. I worked for four years at Kentucky Fried Chicken as a kitchen hand. My, my brother-in-law is very keen to distinguish this kind of chefing from what he does. But, um, but I'm, I'm grateful that the colonel put me through uni. Our store was the regional training centre where new managers got trained. So frequently on my shift, I'd be there rolling the chicken in the flour and the, the 11 different herbs and spices. <laughs> And the special state training guy would come in with five fresh, keen, new trainee managers with clipboards and pens. They'd just watch an hour video in the training room on how to roll a chicken in the flour, and now they're coming out with their, their clipboards to watch someone actually do it. <laughs> There's a little bit of pressure. Now, all the guys in the room, my boss, he's watching from behind, state training boss, five... Trainee bosses, never was a piece of chicken watched more carefully. <laughs> you know, with all those eyes on it, would it be the moment to just you know, accidentally go, <laughs> sneeze, <laughs> and, and throw it in the fryer anyway? <laughs> but you know, if Jesus is always watching, why would I do my job differently when the trainee managers are there? Why am I more careful then with those human eyes on me? Why do I cut corners when they're not looking? Or an even better question, why do I care so little about the one who is my true master? Many of you will be in office cultures where it's all about looking busy, even if you aren't. You know, we all arrive early, we leave late, we're really busy, but, but you know, there's a lot of Facebook and eBay in the middle. It's all about creating an illusion that you know, I'm just a little bit busier than my colleagues. That's all I have to do, just be a bit busier than them. The idea that Jesus is watching should really challenge us, but also be a great comfort. Uh, notice in the passage, there's a strong recognition that in a fallen world, there won't always be justice in the workplace. Masters must be urged to do what is right and fair. It assumes that sometimes that won't actually be what naturally happens. But at the end of the day, if, if Jesus is my true master, even when you get totally mistreated at work, when your supervisor takes the credit for something that, that was your idea or blames you for something when it was his fault or when something goes wrong at home for your boss 
and he turns up cranky and takes it out on you at work. Jesus knows. And his love and his acceptance is a reward to focus on that no earthly pay packet or accolade can compare to. You know, when you give your best and don't get the sale, or the exam results, they don't reflect how you busted your gut all year. Or you cleaned the house at 10am, but by the afternoon your toddler has completely trashed it. No one will ever believe you that you actually got it clean at some point. <laughs> when you stack the dishwasher every night, and all your partner ever comments on is the one coffee cup you miss. Jesus knows. And his love, his acceptance, is a reward no earthly praise can compare with. If you live to please the boss, or anyone else, but if you live to please the boss, if you live for his approval or her approval, if that's your great reward, it just might ultimately destroy you. You will either sacrifice everything to get that approval, or you'll become full of bitterness and despair when you're unappreciated, when you're overlooked, when you're retrenched. And when you retire, if your boss's praise is what you have lived for, for what then? More on that tomorrow. It'll still hurt to get the blame for someone else's stuff up. But yet, the more we can focus on pleasing Jesus, the more our longing in life is to honour him, the more his love is precious to us, the less and less those things will matter. Well, let's look really practically about how that works in the workplace. If you turn back to Ephesians chapter 4, back a page, Ephesians 4, and the last verse, and that, that great passage about what the new life will look like now we've been brought out, it talks very specifically about the workplace. 4.28. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Yeah, the work is the command. Doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Now, notice how good work is at several levels in this one verse. Uh, first thing to see, there, there is good and bad lines of work. Some jobs are wrong. To know Jesus, to follow him, some careers are incompatible. The thief must give up his thieving. Where a job is clearly sinful, it asks you to do something at odds with how God wants you to live. A guy at our last church, his first full-time job, left school. He was asked to wind back the speedo on his boss's car. When he refused, he was told to leave his religion at church and he not to bring it to work. He buckled under and wound back the speedo and he has regretted it ever since because he did it once. From then on, he felt he had to say yes every other time he was asked to. Radical idea in Ephesians 6 and Ephesians 4. There is a higher authority in your workplace than your earthly boss. But also where a job might expose you to dangerously to a particular temptation. You know, is it wrong to work in a brewery? 
Well, of course not. You know, we, good gear is a good good beer is a great gift from God. We need good brewery workers. <laughs> but if you've got an issue with alcohol, someone who struggles, where this will bring up real issues in the Christian life for them, it's not the kind of work you should be. Uh, that might mean, uh, as we really heard wonderfully in the interview just now, that might mean making costly and even public and courageous decisions to change what you're doing, to do other things. But this verse is saying much more than just the negative of avoiding bad work. There are good things about work. You know the verse, one good thing about paid work is getting paid because you have something to share with others. And if you're part of the team in a marriage or in a family where you're doing unpaid work, you're still part of a team that's enabling that paycheck to come in. But from my pay, I can give to the poor, support my family, put away money for my super so I'm not a burden to others later. I can give at church. If the great need people have is to hear about Jesus, to be forgiven, saved for an eternity without him, we can help meet their greatest need in giving our dollars for gospel work. But there's another good as well. This verse is not just saying get the job that pays the most, give lots of dollars to Jesus. No, work has another good. The thief is not simply to stop thieving, not simply to earn a wage, but is to do something useful with their hands, something that benefits others. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, uh, a British Christian academic, a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, she wrote a number of uh, plays and novels. She wrote a, an amazing, a very famous essay just after World War II titled, Why Work? And in it she argued in Western culture increasingly, nobody really works anymore for the sake of the work they do. I do my job instead for money or status. Doctors practice medicine not to relieve suffering, but in order to make money. Lawyers take briefs, not because of their passion for justice, but because it pays well. We could add students study Shakespeare, not because it's worth reading, but for points in the HSC. Dorothy Sayers made the observation during World War II, men found themselves immensely happy and satisfied in the army. They loved their work. Men had been teachers, doctors, lawyers. They loved their work in the army, driving trucks, cooking meals, cleaning toilets. Not because of the pay. It's lousy. Not because of the conditions. They were terrible. Not because it was safe. They faced death every day. But it was work that was satisfying because it was doing something for the good of others, part of protecting their nation from invasion. They either pictured, like, like um, T.O., they, they, they pictured their immediate family or the society in general, the British public, and they could think of their work as doing good for them. Sayers actually writes, they went back to being accountants and lawyers and teachers after the war, but many found their work desperately dissatisfying in comparison. Now, now, do you hear what she's saying? Work worth doing. It could be paid or unpaid, 
might involve doing difficult, unpleasant things, but it can be endured. No, it can be enjoyed, can be richly satisfying if you have a sense that in the words of Ephesians, you are loving others. You are doing something useful for their benefit. Now, here's where you need to be careful. Now, you might say, well, hang on, my job is just putting numbers into Excel spreadsheets in my little cubicle. Hello, accountants. <laughs> you might say, my job doesn't love people. I don't see another person all day. I need to go you know, and get a job handing out food to the homeless or, or you know, talking to people at a nursing home. You need to have a bigger sense of what the common good, of how your work might actually be serving others. I sat for 10 minutes at Wynyard Station this week waiting to meet someone. I don't know how many thousands of people go through Wynyard Station every day. I'm glad that someone empties the bins. I'm glad that toilets get cleaned very regularly, that someone sweeps the pavement, repairs the broken floor, that's the floor, it would very quickly become unbearable, except that people serve us in all sorts of unseen and maybe undervalued ways. But, you know, in Sydney, if tomorrow the magistrates and the garbage collectors both went on strike, which problem would you notice first? <laughs> you know, at first glance, it might seem like, you know, being a doctor is a really useful job, a really good way of caring for others, when that might not be really true. Hello, doctors. <laughs> world Vision Research shows if a team of doctors go into a village in a third world country instead of a medical clinic, eventually they will raise the life expectancy by about two years. But if you send in a team of sewerage workers get the wastewater taken away, clean, fresh drinking water. The life expectancy raised by eight years. Why do we hear Christian parents, why don't we hear them talking their kids out of medicine in order to do something more useful? <laughs> I talked earlier about putting lids. I'm going to be in trouble, I know. I, I talked... To, Question time later. I talked, I talked earlier about putting lids on desserts on the production line. Menial, boring, but you know, most of the world, a lot of work is like that. People don't have meaningful, creative jobs where they're following their dream and reaching their potential. Well, they take whatever they can get. Almost all of us have some part of our week, have tasks we do, we would really we really love for someone else to be doing this. But if you see your work God's way, any job, whether it's in the, wash, in the workplace, stacking the dishwasher when you get home, if I can see it how God does, I'll want to do it well. And I might even find it satisfying, more, far more satisfying than otherwise. There might be some people here who need to think about changing their job. Maybe the doctors. <laughs> but for most of us, it's changing how you see your job. It's changing 
why you go to work. There's nothing more soul-destroying than simply going to work because you have a mortgage. There's no joy in that. If that's what you're telling yourself when you get out of bed on Monday morning, even an interesting creative job will very soon become a burden. If you're just focusing on, on the money you will make, well, look, in the short term, if that's the only thing that can get you out of bed on Monday morning, well, think of the bills, think of the mortgage, that's fine. But in the long term, if that's what you set your heart on each Monday morning, I don't care how much your job pays, you cannot serve two masters. Are you training your heart with what you say to yourself on Monday morning as you stagger down towards the shower? Are you training your heart to love and delight in Jesus, to focus on a life that love, loves others for the common good? Or are you hardening your heart to Jesus by focusing your heart on a different master? So what will you say, say to yourself this Monday morning? Imagine, imagine praying. Thank you, Jesus, that today I can love others by the work I do, that I can honour and serve my human boss, serve those who will benefit from my work. I can feed myself and be generous to others. And in all this, I can delight in serving you. Uh, here is your homework for this afternoon. you know that was coming? Can I encourage you before you leave this weekend, I encourage you today, write out a specific Monday morning prayer for your particular work. I can't write that for you. You might pray it on, you might actually get it out and pray it on the train on the way, way to work. I was going to say in the car, but maybe don't do that. <laughs> or at home with the kids, or as you walk into your first lecture. Because there are so many things in our culture pushing us to not think this way about work. You need to regularly, constantly recalibrate. Let me give you three examples to finish. The security guard could pray, thank you, Jesus, that my, that my job is the privilege of serving you. As people enter the building, help me to, to greet them in a way that honours you, as though it was you yourself who was entering my building Help me to love people in how I watch over them, as you watch over me. Even when some who work in my building look straight through me each day when they arrive as though I was nothing, who speak to me as though they were much more terribly important than I am. Thank you that I can love them like you've loved me, undeservedly, with a kindness that they haven't earned. Thank you that how I do my work is an opportunity to delight in you and your love to me. The merchant banker could pray, Heavenly Father, thank you that in my work I can serve others by helping them to retire independently, to grow their income so they can feed themselves, care for their families. Heavenly Father, help me to be faithful when I'm entrusted with investing wisely the life savings of others. And Heavenly Father, in a workplace where everyone is evaluated by how many dollars they have, Help me to see people like you see them and like you see me. Help me to value them as so precious that you would give your son for them. Help me to see them as sinners facing an eternity of judgment with all their dollars. 
unless they find your forgiveness. Help me to remember that the only secure thing in all eternity is to be safely in your love. Last one. Heavenly Father, thank you that I can serve Jesus at the call centre. Father, you are so patient with me and my sinfulness. You keep loving me even when I'm not easy to love. Help me when I meet people at their worst, hassled, impatient, not easy to love, when I'm unjustly the focus of their frustration and abuse. Help me to love them in their worst moments, just like you love me. Heavenly Father, help me to be careful in the way I speak, not just because this call is recorded for coaching purposes. but because you, my heavenly supervisor, listen to every call, you hear every conversation. I could pray now, but that would be doing your homework for you. Let's sing.